0: listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. If you've been online recently, you have probably heard of the Twitter files, which for the most part are Twitter threads written by one of two journalists, Matt Taibbi or Barry Weiss, that are based on internal Twitter documents shared with those journalists by the social network's new owner, billionaire Elon Musk. Most of these internal company documents, which have not yet been released to the public and have been curated by Twitter management for Taibbi and Weiss, revealed the politically motivated suppression of information or the suspension of prominent individuals, including then-President Donald Trump, from the platform. The Twitter files have generated more hype in the past few weeks than most other media events in 2022. A lot of that hype, unsurprisingly, has extended to the journalists affiliated with the releases, Taibbi and Weiss, as well as Elon Musk himself. Many are lauding the trio as heroes and now view Twitter as a quote-unquote free speech platform. But is this really so? Like most things that seem too good to be true, the same probably holds when it comes to the Twitter files. Have important revelations been made? Yes, but they aren't necessarily new revelations as many of the internal documents at the center of the Twitter files merely confirm claims that were made over 2 years ago. Is Elon Musk Twitter currently free of the censorship that the Twitter files purports to expose? Not quite, despite the reinstating of some high-profile previously suspended accounts in recent weeks. In looking at the main players as well as the main effects of the Twitter files phenomenon, it becomes quickly apparent that there is a lot to say about the whole affair that is sadly largely absent from even independent media coverage of the files. In order to tease out and explore some of the deeper layers beneath the Twitter files, I am joined today by James Corbett of The Corbett Report at corbettreport.com. James is an investigative journalist and one of the pioneers of open source intelligence based independent news. At The Colbert Report, he has spent well over a decade producing a trove of high-quality and meticulously sourced podcast, videos, documentaries, and articles that cover some of the most important and censored stories of our time. He recently produced an expose on Elon Musk and often overlooked aspects of his background and, like myself, is quite familiar with a media event that took place roughly a decade ago and has some surprising parallels with the Twitter file situation today. So thank you so much for joining me today, James. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout.
1: Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Likewise. So the Twitter files has generated a lot of buzz. And so I guess a, a reasonable place to start off the conversation would, would be to sort of talk about maybe first impressions of the phenomena um, and uh, how the sort of effects that you've seen it have on uh, independent media discourse.
1: Well, I guess uh, my, my first impression is that this could be useful in a way. Um, although, as you say, what we are getting here is not an actual treasure trove of documents. What we are getting here is a curated series of screenshots of various documents. But actually, that speaks to a deeper, sort of more interesting phenomenon as we sp- step into the electronic age. Because the, the types of things that we are seeing are screenshots of emails, screenshots of Slack chats. I don't use Slack, so I don't know what the terminology is there. Um, direct messages, uh, various forms of communication that are presumably incredibly scattered over a number of different databases and organized in different ways. So it raises the fundamental question about who is curating these, this collection of screenshots. And so what what access do we have to the actual information behind them or that contextualizes them? Nothing except what Taibi and Weiss and others are reporting. Um, so we have to sort of take it at face value on a number of different levels. Um, actually that goes back to something that I was talking to uh, uh, Nomi Prinz about um, a number of years ago she wrote a book about the various presidents and their relationships with the banks uh, during their eras and and one thing that came up in our conversation was that it was at least comprehensible you could get a handle on say Roosevelt and the various correspondence that he had because everything was done on paper and through, through letters, but it, you move into the Obama age and things are being done by email and these other amorphous sort of electronic communications. That means it's in, extremely much, much more difficult for a researcher to get a handle on all of the communications that are going on. And I think this is a reflection of that. So there's that sort of problem of it. What information are we getting and f- filtered through what source? And that even became part of the Twitter files controversy itself, as it was revealed that I believe it was Yoel, uh, Yoel Roth who was curating these tweets, uh, or these 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 screenshots, I should say, for the original, the first uh, release of Twitter Files threads by um, Matt Taibbi. And then he was canned and presumably replaced by someone else. But now who is curating these for the, re- the reporters? I, I, again, I don't know. And is there a different process going on? What's their screening process? It raises a lot of questions about how we deal with this type of information in the electronic age. And like so much else in the electronic age, I think it comes back to the point that we are essentially at, at the whim, at the mercy of the people who are actually holding the the keepers of the database. They, they will allow us to see what they allow us to see. And we won't see what we are not allowed to see.
0: So it seems like, you know, one of the intentions here is for, you know, obviously Twitter is under new ownership with Elon Musk. Uh, you know, steering steering the course of the company from now on, and it seems like what this is is aimed at doing is making it seem like censorship, uh, this politically motivated censorship that the focus of the Twitter fi- Twitter files or, or the Twitter files is focused on that this will not continue under his under his reign or something like that. Uh, despite the fact that there are some people like a uh, Garland Nixon, for example, a, a well known critic of U.S. foreign policy. Um, who have been suspended since Elon took over. For example, you've had some um, high-profile people specifically in the um, sort of the alternative narratives to COVID-19, people like Peter McCullough and Robert Malone having their accounts restored. Um, But it seems like there's obviously some sort of um, motive for the people curating this, and I guess it would be to convince people that the company is having a facelift of sorts uh, do you see that actually being uh, likely or are we, um, you know, sort of being misdirected here?
1: I, I would venture to say we are being misdirected. And I think that's already demonstrable, as you've already pointed out, um, given people like Arlen Nixon. Um, as you say, other people in the alternative media space who were suspended continue to be suspended under the reign of emperor musk um obviously alex jones being one example where specifically musk weighed in personally because now it is apparently elon musk's personal decision as to whether someone is allowed on twitter or not and alex jones will not be because Elon musk lost his first uh baby as 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 a baby and he he was holding him as he took his last breath that Claim disputed by his ex-wife, but anyway, um, that and for that reason, Alex Jones is not allowed on the what? What does that have to do with this? Yeah, free speech? very you very pro- odd what narrative. Yeah.
0: there. very very strange. Mm-hmm.
1: But in a sense, understandable. Again, Elon Musk. We have to understand that Elon Musk is a billionaire uh, for a reason. You do not become part of the billionaire oligarch club unless you are willing to play various games. And I hope people understand by now that Elon Musk is certainly part of the billionaire oligarch club who has gotten to the position he has gotten to because he has been willing to play various games. And I think one of these games is that, of course, you're not going to let Alex Jones back on the platform. That would be this, the bridge too far. So he will he might go in other directions with other uh, decisions. But um, at the latest, as we are talking, I just saw this coming across the newswire, that uh, the Apparently, the the college freshman who is tracking Elon Musk's uh, private jet has not only now been suspended from Twitter, but is now apparently facing potential legal charges over his. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's That's, a
0: long running thing. I think that's been going on for a year or two. Elon Musk's disdain with this kid who uh as you just mentioned is basically pointing out where he's traveling all the time uh, which he like he's allowed to do like this is publicly available it's public information.
1: information indeed right yeah. and so he is uh it's, it's literally just a twitter bot essentially that just uh posts every time his private jet moves somewhere and again that that isn't even necessarily Elon in his private jet it's just the movement of his jet but apparently that's not only against twitter's terms of service but now apparently questionably legally liable for that information mm. i don't know i don't know how that's going to stick and i'm not sure in which jurisdiction he's going to be tried but anyway that was the latest that i saw today so again it is the arbitrary whims of a singular dictator which i am not <laughs> sure if that's what um elon musk's supporters and the people who were cheering him on during this take twitter takeover process were originally cheering on were they really uh, oh yay now a different dictator will be able to come in and say who is and is not allowed on the platform at his personal whims was that really what was being sold or was it free speech no matter what this is the battle well, for the future of civilization th- that as was Elon how Musk it started
0: said. right and then he came out with this line which is freedom of speech is not freedom of reach which mm. is basically licensed to do all this funny business that the twitter files in part has focused on things like shadow banning and you know, putting people on naughty lists and <laughs> and whatnot. You know, uh, because like they can have their freedom of of reach uh, restricted. It's interesting. Anyway, I think since we're talking about Elon a lot, you've obviously been looking into him. Or have looked into him uh, rather recently. And I think, you know, it's pretty clear from how he handles himself on Twitter specifically, but in other regards as well, that he's very, very, very conscious of his public image. Mm -hmm. And there's a very specific public image of himself that he wants to construct. Um so uh, maybe uh, we could discuss that for a little bit and if you would like to throw in um some of the uh, bits in, uh, <laughs> about his background that kind of clash with that public image a bit uh, sure. that would be helpful as well. Well
1: I I didn't go deeply into his family background and where he comes from uh, other than to point out that he is uh, again as people hopefully know by now literally the grandson of a card carrying technocrat who was a high-up member of the technocratic party in Canada, who fled to South Africa and uh, he apparently looms large in the Musk family lore. Essentially, um, he was an important figure, even though he died, I believe, when Musk was very, very young, um, perhaps even before he was born. But at any rate, he looms large in the Musk family legend. And then there's a, a whole story about his father and the abuse that he may have suffered at his father's hands. And now his father fathering new children with his stepdaughter i don't know it's very yeah
0: weird stuff going on there that's
1: uh um so this is the type of background anyway which uh, from which musk emerged but essentially he emerged into the public spotlight at a relatively young age um, making his way to canada and then to the u.s where he began a series of entrepreneurial ventures starting with something called uh, zip2 which was Uh, meant to be a sort of i guess kind of like a proto craigslist essentially list your business on our on the on the internet as when that was a new um idea and uh, eventually managed to make some money out of that by essentially selling that service to newspapers that were starting to feel the pinch of classified ads um declining revenues Mm -hmm. and uh used that parlayed that straight into paypal um which again is an entire story into itself and i'm Sure, there's a lot to talk about with regards to the PayPal mafia and his connections to people like Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, Peter Thiel is a totally different, has a totally different philosophy than Musk, at least that's what Musk assures us. Um, so you don't have to worry about Palantir and things like that coming from Musk. No, um, you will simply worry about the brain chips and other things, because, of course, <laughs> as people may or may not know, Elon Musk did spend a short time as CEO of the combined um uh paypal what what merged into paypal from his ex.com and um peter thiel and slash max levkin's uh uh paypal eventually merged into a singular entity see uh musk took over the ceo role for a short time was eventually shoehorned out of there because uh the board was not happy with his decisions and the way he was trying to run the company so he um basically took the golden parachute out of there um, received a few hundred million dollars uh, for his efforts and parlayed that into SpaceX, Tesla Motors and SolarCity and and the Boring Company and all of these other ventures, which I'm sure the, your listeners are broadly aware that he's been involved with. But of course, the connecting thread through all these ventures is government money, uh, um, essentially, right. um, a, a whole series of different ways in which government grants and tax breaks and what have you have essentially propped up his businesses to the point where they are possible at all. Um, And I think it's starting to become a point. Now, you see, this is the interesting part of this is because um, for a long time, Musk has been a darling of, I think, the 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 good thinking liberal left in the United States and elsewhere um, who have seen him as this sort of cool space uh tech guy who is going to save the environment and he he cares about all the things we care about it is only recently that he has made the heel turn as it were and is now being supported by the right wing of the culture war that's raging in the United States right now and so uh he has enjoyed for a very long time this sort of glow of publicity of being some sort of essentially tech savior or tech guru but now Now, the very same types of platforms that would have been uh, heralding him as a savior just a few years ago are now digging in and finding, you know, Tesla isn't a very well-run company and other such things. So (laughs) it's just interesting to watch how this plays out, not based on any actual difference in what is happening on the ground, but simply in the change in people's perception of who this person is and whether he is on their side or not.
0: Right. So let's talk about a little bit um, how it, specifically since he's purchased Twitter, how Elon Musk has been cultivating his image. So I think it's pretty clear, um, that he's very interested in presenting himself one as anti-establishment right now. I mean, he's even gone so far to say things like I might be suicided and things of this nature. And this is a bit odd to me when you consider what you just mentioned. Um, and, and of course there's a lot of evidence for this, that his wealth his current comp roster of companies, a lot of it could not exist without the establishment. And, and a lot of these companies, um, are very, very much involved with, uh, the national security state, specifically SpaceX, which is a defense and intelligence contractor. So, you know, if this is a guy that's really going up against the, uh you know, the establishment, the deep state, even though I don't really like that term, I prefer national security state, um you know he's he's essentially a part of that, so it's a bit um there's definitely a contrast there. he's trying to you know i guess make himself seem just like a regular person uh on occasion posting memes and and other things, and you know there's other aspects of this image he's building is there uh so what are what, what sort of image do you see him building and and what sort of motives do you think maybe behind that?
1: It's uh, uh, it's extremely difficult to know sort of the inner workings of, of the creation, the public creation of a spectacle like Elon Musk. But I do see it as somewhat similar to what we saw just a few years ago with the creation of the personality of Donald Trump um, and being sold to a certain section of the public that I think is certainly ready for some sort of savior. I think that it is the savior narrative that is being played on here. And we saw that with trump was going to be the savior of people on the on the right uh, again of this culture war divide that's taking place certainly in the united states right now um and then it that was if not eclipsed and perhaps uh, bolstered by the QAnon psyop which even fed further into that idea of the savior narrative and that obviously didn't quite pan out the way that q supporters were hoping so um now it's time to find a new person to ping, pin hopes on and musk has taken up that mantle. And to obviously, as you say, I think Musk is extremely aware of his public image. And just the fact that he is engaged in tweeting and replying to people on Twitter on an on hourly basis um, shows that he is interested in at least cultivating some sort of public image of himself. And clearly, uh, that is lining up with the type of, I, I suppose, broadly, the resistance movement that has risen up in the past few years against lockdowns and mandates of various sorts and musk has positioned himself to be oh i'm the one who's gonna i'm gonna move to texas because uh, i don't want to deal with california and its draconian lockdown laws and all of this um so he has positioned himself in this way for a couple of years now at least and now is really coming out as someone who's being championed essentially, essentially largely by people on the right who are disaffected by the Establishment, and I think this this whole narrative of the Twitter files plays perfectly and brilliantly into that, because clearly Twitter was very much being run um, by people who were very, very invested in the Democrat Party and basically ma- ensuring the the continued rule of the Democrats and and uh, un, uh, a disproportionate suppression of information coming from the right side of the political spectrum. So um, Musk being put in this position. Well, he's the opposition to that. Therefore, he's on, quote unquote, our side. And I think exactly, again, exactly as Trump, the billionaire, was posited as, yeah, don't worry, guys, he's on your side. He's he's for the average working man. I think, again, Musk is stepping into that role now that uh, Trump has seemed to vacate it.
0: So what Musk is doing here um, has sort of raised my eyebrow about in, in terms of you know what he might be up to. So One thing that I've noticed over the past two years, especially, you know, if you look at, for example, everyone these days knows about the World Economic Forum, right? So one of their big themes last year was rebuilding trust. And a a lot of even the Biden administration, a lot of, you know, prominent institutions are very much aware that there is a major lack of trust, specifically among certain segments of the population. So, you know, if I was the world economic forum, which again, Elon Musk was a a young global leader. Right. Um, and agrees with a lot of the main policies that, you know, sort of WEF centric politicians and others tend to support like, um, UBI, um, among, among several others, I think a carbon tax, some other things. Um, you know, if, if I was, you know, someone like Klaus Schwab, I guess, right? And I wanted to get people to rebuild trust, and I know they're never going to trust me, right? I need some sort of figure um, that people who hate me will trust that supports the same policy agendas that I do, right?
1: Exactly right. Uh, essentially influence laundering um, by way of the cool new tech savior that, hey, hey guys, he's totally on your side. And I definitely see what you're saying there. Um, and again, since this is 2022, I guess that we have to connect everything back to the World Economic Forum. So we must mention young <laughs> global leader, Elon Musk. Um, clearly, and, and as you say, on board with so many different aspects of the uh, of the technocratic agenda generally, but the World Economic Forum agenda, specifically in Klaus Schwab's statements. I know there's been a Twitter meme that's floated around for some time comparing um, Klaus Schwab's statements on various issues like UBI and brain chips and what have you, and Elon Musk's statements. I did make a little segment of that in my recent Elon Musk uh, technocratic huckster expose um, just to drive home the point that i think these people are aligned on many fundamental issues so where where is this break and why are people suddenly cheering on this person who has been so intimately affiliated with the the world government summit and the world economic forum and all of these institutions and, and
0: where's new world order on his clothes and stuff
1: exactly right yeah. very very strange um symbolism and uh things that come Uh, from himself and from Grimes and the various people that he's been associated with. But um, also, I mean, perhaps more substantially, we're looking at someone who is literally in the process of creating brain chips that are going to augment humans in order to save us from the transhuman nightmare that's coming somehow. Uh, Don't think too deeply about that. And oh, by the way, they're killing the uh, test animal subjects left and right, but I'm sure it'll all be sorted out
0: Yeah, like 20% of the animal subjects die. And if this was any normal medical device and the FDA was functioning as it was before COVID, it would be very hard to get it to human trials. But let's just say it seems like Elon Musk is taking advantage of the removal of um, obstacles at the FDA since the COVID situation uh, to get... Neuralink straight to human trials after animal trials killed like 15 out of 23 animals or eight, depending on if you believe Elon Musk company.
1: Right. Directly. Yeah. They say it was eight, not 15, but, and, you know. Uh, exactly right. And let's, I mean, let's put this in perspective for people. what what uh, What is the ultimate agenda here? I think your audience is not naive. And I think they understand by this point that when something is part of a broader agenda it will be approved through the official regulatory process exactly sure. as the mrna vaccines were approved um, well i mean there's a whole thing about the word approved but you understand emergency use authorized um, mm-hmm. and exactly in this case as well the the things that neuralink are have been have been doing and was documented before all of this twitter files hype started to to um, swell up in the media. Um, absolutely as you say would have disqualified absolutely any other company but for some reason on this particular project it seems that the regulatory agencies don't seem to care too much about the uh, let alone the animal subjects but how about the the potential for human trials going forward um, again if it's part of an agenda item i think the doors will be opened for it and this is a prime example of that
0: Yeah, well, frankly, it's really disturbing to me that if that many monkeys died and he's not worried about that many humans dying in human trials, um, you know, that's kind of clashes with the public image he's been trying to cultivate lately. so what I brought up earlier about the rebuilding trust initiatives we're having uh, or, or that have been you know openly talked about by a lot of these uh, more or less nefarious organizations. Uh, what worries me right is that you've people like Klaus Schwab talking about brain chips and, and this technology, people like Bill Gates even on board, right? But you know, Elon Musk is basically developing a brand. so people that would normally be against that if it was Schwab or Gates. You know, they'd be like, "Well, Musk is different. Look what he did with Twitter. He cares about free speech. He's not going to invade and surveil my thoughts. Um, you know, he's he's not like the other ones. He's the yeah. good billionaire." Yeah,
1: exactly. It, it, could you imagine if Bill Gates had taken over Twitter and was personally running it? And I mean, yes, no one—certainly none of the people who trust Musk and what he is doing—and are on board with this idea the notion of freedom of speech even if it's not actually being implemented in reality would obviously be running the other way as quickly as they possibly could if bill gates were taking over no but elon musk is the cool billionaire who's Who's on the good side? And I th- uh, again, I think it's interesting to note that um, the the problems that Neuralink have had for for some time. I, I I've been following it and talking about it for a while now and trying to draw attention to the to the uh, the things that we already knew about the grim results of the animal test studies at Neuralink. They they've been out there for several months now, uh, mm-hmm. at the very least, but very 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 little coverage until now. The Twitter files comes out, and as I say the. The, the the sort of the the left side of the the culture war and the establishment media have been activated against Musk and are now finally bringing attention to stories like this and problems at Tesla and other such things but uh, of course we have to keep in mind this sort of the bigger the bigger picture of what is going on here which again we do not have to look back very far for the the example of how this works we we saw um what happened during the Trump era where um suddenly the establishment media was very very interested in holding politicians feet to the fire well not politicians in general essentially essentially just Donald Trump (laughs) and uh we saw them go back to sleep dutifully once Joe Biden took took over so uh, I think we're seeing the similar pattern playing out that Elon Musk clearly uh, they're finally starting to do some investigative reporting on these companies and what they're doing but that will be interpreted by Musk's supporters as look the mainstream establishment media that lies about everything. Well, now they're lying about Musk because they don't like him and what he's doing to their, 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 the, he's owning the libs on Twitter.
0: Oh, what an interesting state of affairs. All right. So maybe we should go back to the, the Twitter files itself for a second. So sure. Mike and we talked, you talked earlier about the, the curation uh, issue. And when I saw the, the how this was being rolled out and, you know, uh, Matt Taibbi uh, was saying things like he had to ex- uh, accept certain uh, restrictions in order to work on on the story, um, and all of this. What what came what really got my attention is that I think this is yet another step away from, uh, well, sort of changing how the American public perceives the idea of quote unquote leaks. You know, if you go back uh, a decade or even less, really, you know, there was a once upon a time the WikiLeaks era, which, of course, has sort of, I think, moved out of sight and out of mind for most Americans at this point, where WikiLeaks uh, didn't really do so much curation. Uh, they would, you know, in the case of a lot of the emails they released in other documents, they, they made searchable databases. And this this changed with, you know, something that <clears throat> we can talk about in a little bit, the creation of The Intercept and the owner of PayPal, Piero Midiar, which, of course, has a lot of parallels, in my opinion, to the situation with um, the Twitter files. But uh, since then, you know, you've had the the persecution of of Julian Assange, the dismantling of WikiLeaks as an organization. And pretty much most of the quote unquote leaks that have come out since then have not you know, been handled that way in in service to, you know, greater transparency, it's been mostly um, curated. And so in the case of the Intercept, right, you have the Snowden leaks, 90% of it is never released, right. And now you have, you know, claims after Jack Dorsey, um, of the former, you know, well, the co founder of Twitter and former uh, head of it, uh, you know, steps in and asks Musk to release, uh, you know, the full files and all of this, uh, which must says he'll do, and then subsequently it's claimed that a lot of things were deleted as a disgruntled employee was leaving. How true mm-hmm. that is, I don't know, but, you know, that we're getting these just screenshots and not searchable files is interesting, uh, and I, I think it's particularly interesting when you look at the situation um, – That was the focus of the earlier Twitter file releases, which is the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop. Of course, Hunter Biden being the um, very troubled son of uh, U.S. President Joe Biden. So a a lot was said about the suppression of the laptop story and all of this. Um, But very little interest shown in, hmm, why would they suppress the laptop? What's actually on the laptop? It turns out not that long before the Twitter files came out, um, a nonprofit group called Marco Polo released um, a nearly 700 page, very detailed uh, report on exactly what is on the laptop and why it matters. Very interesting that that's been moved out of the Twitter files almost entirely. It's like the story is almost entire uh, is pretty much on the suppression, not on the content that was being suppressed. What are your thoughts on that?
1: well actually i will say that i guess mission accomplished for the twitter files because this is literally the first time i am hearing about this 700 page report which i will have to go out and download now so thank you for bringing it to my attention but it goes to show just how thoroughly the twitter files brouhaha has displaced any actual examination of the underlying data that we're supposedly talking about but not really um what an what absolutely fascinating isn't it um okay so you raised some incredibly important points and here's one that has made me very unpopular among certain sectors of the independent media space for a long time is that I have always acknowledged what um what big Brzezinski said about the WikiLeaks phenomenon at the time that it was going on back in 2010 11. uh he was giving an interview in which uh he opined that the WikiLeaks uh, organization is uh, uh, such a, a beautiful, wonderful idea for uh, intelligence agencies to selectively leak information. Um, and I think the implication yeah. of that is that it, uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that Julian Assange is himself some sort of intelligence agent who's, who's uh, essentially laundering this information out to the public, but he could be used by intelligence agencies that selectively leak certain documents. Oh, oops, those documents got out while other documents remain suppressed. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that issue, I think, is a core issue of this entire question about leaked documents and what they what they do and don't tell us and how, how they are interpreted um, and who interprets them for us, because generally speaking, we don't have direct access to this sort of insider information that makes these documents understandable. Um, even within the Twitter files, we have to rely on on Barry Weiss and uh, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and others to tell us what some of this Twitter lingo, the internal lingo means. Uh, there was a bunch of acronyms and things, PII and other things that I was learning about when reading through the Twitter files that, as they say, you know, we had to talk to Twitter uh, current and former employees to sort of understand the context of this particular screenshot that we're now showing you. So I think the fundamental question when it comes to these types of releases is the question of the the bottleneck of information. Obviously we're not getting everything so who and at what point is that information being withheld or suppressed and then once it is put forward in some manner then who is who is interpreting that who is making it sort of accessible to the public in a sense. And that was I think we saw the transitionary point of the wikileaks era of the the leaking where it was as you say large document dumps to this highly cultivated curated era of the twitter files i think the the middle point the nexus point was the snowden information which as you allude to was uh, uh, according to snowden himself was consciously done in a way that it would be curated by journalists and they would report on what they thought was uh, journalistically important and the documents themselves would not be released and that was Snowden's stipulation and that was the way that he wanted that to go and so he selected the journalists and blah 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 I'm sure people are broadly familiar with that story but of course what ultimately resulted from that who ended up essentially getting the cash of Snowden documents was as you say Pierre Omidyar and First Look Media which spawned The Intercept and I as as you say I did reporting on it at the time how The Intercept came together and for people who don't know about the Omidyar Network and its relationship to for example funding Ukrainian protest movements back during the uh, the coup there um back in 2014 etc I've done work on that before um but I think it's incredibly important to understand the way that 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 cache of potentially interesting information uh, again i say there's probably a bottleneck and who knows how much of that information is uh, seeded into the public consciousness on purpose. But anyway, potentially interesting information obviously kept behind the closed walls of a private organization like First Look Media, The Intercept, which was supposedly the core idea of The Intercept. The core founding of it was to curate and report on the Snowden documents. That's the way it was sold to the public. That's, That's what the way we it was did. sold. Uh, and exactly. it was a lot of
0: hype. Um, he, you know, Glenn Greenwald was already kind of a celebrity journalist, but he became ultra celebrity. Um, he was joined, of course, by Laura Poitras, Jeremy Skehill. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was probably one of the biggest media events of of that particular period. Um, a lot of interest, of course, in the Snowden leaks, which the Snowden Archive, run by First Look Media, uh, was shut down a couple years ago. Uh, so that 90 percent plus of the the documents uh, ha- will never be released, as far as we know. The Washington Post and I think one other mainstream media outlet received aspects of the cachet, which I doubt they're going to, <laughs> to release, uh, but The the Intercept uh, said it was too expensive um, at the time. And this will be in, in the show notes for those that are interested. Um, I did a report. I was working for Met Press News at the time about how it's very, very unlikely that cost was the real reason. As you mentioned, Pierre Omidyar has ties to uh, funding some very suspect uh, movements in pre-coup 2014 uh, Ukraine. Uh, Also heavily funding USAID and having other ties to the national security state. And it has been alleged that aspects of the Snowden archives, specifically some of the documents not released, uh, detailed how PayPal, uh, which Omidyar has been the owner of since the early 2000s, buying it from Musk and and Peel and co., uh, the PayPal's relationship with intelligence agencies and presumably its role in uh, illegal mass surveillance, among other things. I mean, of course, you have to speculate, but that seems, um, you know, very plausible when you look at how this ultimately played out. But, you know, it, going back in time to about a decade ago, uh, Pierre Omidyar, not that differently from Elon Musk, was framing himself as a revolution, revolutionary guy who's going to, you know, change journalism forever. And that's not that different from what Elon Musk is doing with the Twitter files and talking about how Twitter can be a new place for journalism and it's decent, you know, decentralized journalism and all of this stuff. Uh, Pierre Omidyar, back in, you know, when he was setting up The Intercept, there were puff pieces all about him, how he wanted to fund adversarial uh, journalism, Glenn Greenwald and, you know, the other people that signed on to First Look, uh, including Matt Taibbi himself, actually, um, talked about how uh, there was going to be no interference from Pierre Omidyar and the stories they were writing, things like that. Uh, Matt Taibbi actually ended up leaving First Look, uh, I think within his first year there, uh, because of disagreements with Omidyar. But Greenwald and co. went on insisting that there was no influence there. Um, I disagreed with that on more than a few few fair occasions. Uh, Greenwald was not very nice to me. Um, But subsequently ended up leaving The Intercept because he said that there was... um, censorship and they weren't letting, you know, they were influencing the types of stories and, and what have you. So I don't know. It seems like Glenn Greenwald figured it out at the end, uh, ultimately. But, you know, when it comes to The Intercept, I have a lot of opinions, I guess, probably because <laughs> I've written like eight articles on it, maybe more. And uh, one thing I, I, to me, it really just seems like it was an operation in a lot of ways. So you have, you know, Pierre Omidyar being very well funded. He's essentially sweeps in and privatizes the Snowden leaks. And before he is framed as this revolutionary and does that, there are tweets of Pierre Omidyar's where he talks about people who leak documents to groups like WikiLeaves are thieves and something needs to be done to help catch the thief. Yeah. He sets up The Intercept, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, James. Uh, in short order, of course, with all the hype around Snowden and Secure Drop, the platform for leakers to submit their documents to The Intercept that Snowden promotes, um, three uh, whistleblowers uh, have gone to prison for leaking to The Intercept. And in every of those three cases, it was... Uh, either sloppy or allegedly in in an intentional act to out the source and have them go to prison. So those three would be reality winner Terry Albury and Daniel Hale. So, you know, if you're looking at this down the road and and then the closure of the Snowden Archive and all of this, it really seems to me that Pierre Omidyar was interested in creating a honeypot for would-be leakers on behalf of his friends in the national security state while at the same time privatizing leaks and being able to curate ones that were interesting, you know, enough to the public, but, you know, slow down the pace gradually and create a media outlet with this hype around it, of it being adversarial, honest, independent journalism, uh, sticking it to the man, when in reality it has not been that. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add to that.
1: Well, I would venture to say, I mean, ask the average person who actually reads The Intercept, and perhaps that's already a small (laughs) section of the public, but ask someone who who reads The Intercept uh, about it, and I would imagine the vast majority of them probably by this point don't even know that this was supposedly originally set up as the place for the parsing and and journalism surrounding the Snowden files. Uh, It's obviously that it, it literally closed the door on that several years ago officially uh we're, we're, we're done with the stone files that's it so it was uh, uh, it was a brilliant PR coup I suppose because it generally seemed to work um it, basically it, all such reporting yes. has has stopped right now and uh, as you say it privatizes the uh, the the notion the the idea of what a WikiLeaks or, or or similar organization could be it has essentially turned it into the hands of a private company that um, as again anyone who looks into Omidiar and the Omidiar network and its various connections will know undoubtedly has connections to the U.S. intelligence world and oh by the way speaking of which as I'm sure you know um Alan McLeod over at Mint Press News has been doing reporting on the various intelligence officials at various uh, uh of the social media outlets including of course Twitter which has been infested by various um intelligence agents career uh, intelligence officials who then go on to in various positions in twitter and there's no no lack of examples of people along those lines that he's documented there at mint press news so i, I again it seems like the intelligence agencies working hand in hand with these crusading ngo um slash philanthro entrepreneur capitalist whatever elon musk's and people like that are gradually consolidating information and I suppose maybe it's beside the main point of our conversation today, but I do find it absolutely horrifying to think that Twitter really does represent the future of journalism um, because the Mm. confines of the 280-character little soundbite of a soundbite, essentially, um, reporting um, that's then broken up into these threads, it's, it's it's a horrible way of conveying information. And I point to one example from the Twitter files itself, uh, as if my memory serves, it was in the first Twitter files thread um, that Matt Taibbi did, where he made a statement about um, there, no evidence, they have seen no evidence linking this to an interference by uh, government or something along those lines. And that particular statement was caught on and and became this this big way of basically uh, allowing people to shrug their shoulders about the Twitter files oh whatever I mean they say there's not even any government interference so what's the big deal um my reading of that is that Matt Tybee was essentially saying there's no evidence that there was um Russian government sponsorship essentially of the, the Hunter Biden laptop story that 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 connection the foreign government connection was not but because of the confines of the 280 characters i believe that message became mangled and then got misinterpreted and misreported and that's the kind of world we're stepping into when we start thinking that oh you know these twitter threads are going to be the the deep dive journalism of the future can you imagine whitney putting something like one nation under blackmail in a twitter thread form how many millions (laughs) of tweets would that take
0: no no one would read it (laughs) Well, <laughs> exactly. I think, you know, you, you think about, like, 1984 and stuff like that, how they talk about how they manipulated and changed language to, like, dumb it down and, like, cheapen it. I think, you know, reducing, you know, leaks-driven journalism, which generates a lot of attention because leaks is, you know, the hidden to the unhidden, you know, a lot of people are, are interested in it just for that reason, like, it's secrets being aired out, right? And mm-hmm. um uh, what you have here is, you know, that hype. But it's, you know, this is what journalism looks like now. This is the cutting edge stuff. And you know, it, as someone who writes very long articles, uh, I do not think that Twitter threads are the future <laughs> of journalism. And if, if that is the move being, you know, made here, I think it's a little unsettling. But I think there's a bit more to it as well. Um, for example, Barry Weiss, one of the journalists who was handpicked by Musk to be sort of the one of the interpreters in uh, publishers of, of Twitter file uh, threads. Uh, she coincided her participation in the Twitter files with the launch of her new uh, news outlet, which is called the Free Press. Um, if you're familiar with Barry Weiss's background, at least people in my audience, I don't think <laughs> uh, people will expect her to necessarily be uh, objective, at least not on certain topics. Um, I think actually in independent media, she became most notorious for her meltdown on the Joe Rogan podcast, where she called right. Tulsi Gabbard, who You know, I'm certainly not a, you know, she's another young global leader who lies about it, um, actually. But, you know, she was called an Assad toady that is not by Barry Weiss. That is not a fair assessment of Tulsi Gabbard's views on Syria or Assad. And then couldn't define toady. (laughs) Yeah, she couldn't define any of this. She had no evidence for it. And obviously, she's not an objective reporter. And that's especially true when it comes to issues of Zionism, Palestine and Israel, Uh, where she's even accused, you know, anti-Zionist Jews of of anti-Semitism in her book, uh, How to Combat Anti-Semitism, or it's called something like that. Um, She calls uh, anti-Zionist Jews part of a long history of left-wing anti-Semitic movements that successfully conscript Jews as agents in their own destruction, end quote. So, you know, there's a lot to say about censorship of Palestinians on social media, including Twitter, uh but I you know venture to guess that that won't be covered by the Twitter files. That's just a uh a guess here uh so again um it's interesting that her particular outlet is being promoted at the same time uh with people that are you know of the same mold of uh i guess journalist as as she is and you know I'm personally not a fan. I'll <laughs> just uh be pretty open about that and I'm you know. In talking about the parallels between what's going on here and The the Intercept, The Intercept, when it was launched, made celebrities out of people like uh, Jeremy Scahill and Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald and uh, sort of put them above reproach for some people. Um, I don't really think that's uh, fair Uh for you know reasons I've talked about over the years. And of course, people can go back and look at some of my Twitter exchanges with Glenn Greenwald, where uh, I criticize Pierre Omidyar, and he tells me that I'm a liar and belong in a mental hospital, you know, about a year or two before he says the same thing. So, um, you know, again, uh, we're having Taibbi and, and Weiss being elevated here. Um, and it's it's interesting. You mentioned earlier how Elon Musk, you know, previously was sort of a um a a darling of people left-leaning because Tesla's, you know aoc has a tesla and stuff right and was sort of you know seen as being more uh popular on that side of the political divide until sort of his recent uh change and so i think that's kind of fair to say for people like glenn greenwald and matt taibbi
1: um as well anyone who has followed um the development of of greenwald and, and taibbi's public reputation will know um it was interesting to watch, I must admit, just from a popcorn perspective, five or six years ago when they started to talk about, for example, Russiagate and obviously not going along with the establishment message on that and um, the, to see their own audience attacking them so vociferously because this is not the message, guys. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, clearly is the creation of public um, personas. And these people have demonstrated their ability to be essentially chameleons and um, uh Greenwald starting out being pro-Iraq war um but people probably don't remember that way back in the day when he first started blogging um having renounced that several years later when he transformed into the crusading left-wing journalist of The Guardian and then various other outlets in the United States right and then now doing this other transformation through the, uh, after The Intercept and then into this Russiagate era um and now being whatever he is today um and I think Matt Tybee uh, along for much of that same ride so I uh, I think it is about public perception and creation of public persona and playing on that and clearly again it keeps circling back to this sort of divide in the public opinion there is a culture war that is taking place um that clearly people are are looking for people to be on their team And I think most people will accept someone simply saying, hey, guys, I'm on your team or making the right kind of signals that I'm on your team is essentially enough for them to turn off the critical thinking faculty. And no better example of that than Elon Musk, who went from the darling of the left to the darling of the right, and I think shouldn't be the darling of anyone, given the sorts of things he's been involved in.
0: Yeah, well, he, I think, you know, not unlike Trump, who you mentioned earlier, made some comparisons about Elon, uh, too. I think he's most – Elon Musk is most interested in Elon Musk, right, and promoting Elon Musk and Elon Musk image, if you ask me. So I think you know, there's a specific reason why Elon Musk picked Taibbi and Weiss. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but, you know, I – I think it's pretty telling when you consider sort of what we've talked about earlier, that Musk has a very specific reason for doing all of this. And uh, presumably he has picked these two people because of their um, associations. And I guess perceptions among at least some people that they're anti establishment. So uh, you know, in Taibbi's case who journalistically I think is, is far superior to Barry Weiss, who's technically an opinion writer um, Matt Taibbi has done some really good articles over the years. I think he was actually one of the few people in mainstream or at least mainstream adjacent media to cover fast Hub 56, mm-hmm. uh, which was a policy uh, that's really insane where basically government agencies can have public and private uh, budgets, So they can basically, you know, put one version of the budget out there and then have a private one and like cook the books and do all sorts of sane financial uh, crazy stuff. They shouldn't be allowed to do. But having said that, Um, You know, there are certain it's very clear if you look at Matt Taibbi's journalism, there's some topics he does not like to touch at all. And it's very different than someone like Glenn Greenwald, for example. Glenn Greenwald has a lot of similarities to Matt Taibbi, but when pushed on things like 9-11 and and other issues like that. He said, essentially, you have to pick and choose what you cover, like if you want to be taken seriously. So, you know, I've noticed that with people who are main, strive to have them brand-wise be mainstream media adjacent, that they won't cover those types of issues. Yeah. So Matt Taibbi, instead of ignoring those issues um, as a career move uh, over the se- several decades at this point, has made it a point to ridicule people. So he's not just ignoring issues like, you know, September 11th. He intentionally ridicules people who don't believe the official story. And the most recent of these, well, he's done it on Twitter as recently as a few months ago, um, <clears throat> making fun of anyone who identifies themselves as a quote-unquote truther. Uh, but in a 2019 article for Rolling Stone, uh, it's, the subtitle is Why Conspiracy Theories Won't Die. I'll just read a quick quote from it. He says, uh, the old, quote unquote, physical impossibility saw is a nervous tick found in a lot of the trashiest American conspiracy tales. Only controlled demolition could cause Building 7 to free fall on September 11th. And he says, look at the fatal headshot that killed Kennedy. It's back into the left the wrong way if Lee Harvey Oswald was shooting it. So, you know, he's calling people that don't believe in a lone wolf shooter, which is now, according to polls, actually a majority of Americans. Don't think Lee Harvey Oswald was uh, acting alone, right? So um, if you believe that, you're believing a trashy American conspiracy tale. Or if you think 9-11 uh, fell into its own footprint in seven seconds uh, because of uncontrolled office fires, even though there's a University of Alaska study that demolishes the NIST goobly guck a uh, narrative uh, or report that claims to show it was office fires you know um you're uh not very smart so it's it's troubling and probably the most troubling of all goes back to some of his early work where he calls um he says the 9/11 truth movement makes the left behind sci-fi series which is like christian apocalyptic uh stuff uh he says it makes it read like shakespeare and he calls uh people clinically insane uh 911 conspiracy theorists and his his gripes with the 911 truth movement according to him um where he goes it's a lot of ad hominem um about people like Jason Burmes and Dylan Avery um calling them quote-unquote dickwads among other things and he says um uh 911 conspiracy theory is so shamefully stupid It's the lowest form of conspiracy theory um, because it doesn't offer an affirmative theory of the crime. And basically his whole takedown of 9-11 truth has nothing to do with uh, refuting evidence offered by the truth movement. Instead, it's basically, here's a silly dialogue of what I imagine Bush, Rumsfeld and Cheney would have planned if the 9-11 truthers were right. So it's a very dishonest engagement. Uh, with the information in my opinion, and you know it's not what you would do if you were interested in getting to the 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 truth of things. I don't know. I think at this point, you even have people that chaired the nine eleven commission say the official story the nine eleven commission report is full of holes and unanswered question that they were stonewalled, et cetera so you know, is it really fair to call people that uh question the official narrative, you know? you know, trash and hopelessly stupid and and all this nasty ad hominem. I don't know. Uh, do you have any
1: thoughts, James? I do, indeed. Um, I, I recall that, um, probably over a decade and a half ago at this point, there was a, uh, a correspondence that went on between Matt Taibbi and David Ray Griffin that people can look up. And clearly at that point, I think it was quite apparent that Taibbi was never ever going to entertain any quote unquote conspiracy theories about September 11th, exactly as Bush warned us against in his speech to the un um but uh I, I actually have my own experience interacting with glenn greenwald um also uh i do recall at the time where i was doing that reporting on omidyar and first look and what have you um i got into a twitter exchange with him because i was on twitter at that point i am no longer in case anyone out in your audience doesn't know that um, but uh i i did get into a twitter exchange with him in which uh after a few back and forths uh he ended up apparently going through um, my archives—he must have gone pretty deep because he ended up pulling up a YouTube clip that someone had made of some of one of my podcast episodes that, at that point, was probably three or four years old. That he dug up as, oh, look, this guy's talking about stratospheric aerosol injection. Oh, he's one of those chemtrail kooks or something along those lines. Before blocking me, so <laughs> that's that's the type of Glenn Greenwald that um, that was involved in this. And yes, then Matt Taibbi is, I think. a a chip off of the same block um again it's not to say that none of their work is of of any utility some of it right. is um but it, it, i think people have to become discerning as to whether they're simply going to believe someone based on their public reputation of oh this is a this is a cool journalist this is the cool space guy who's going to deliver us uh, the tech that's going to save humanity or yeah. uh, things along those lines i think we have to as a society wisen up and grow up and stop believing these narratives that are implanted for us to believe having said that i imagine most of your audience is already well along the journey towards growing up in that fashion um it's how do we reach people who are so easily entertained and distracted essentially by things of this sort um again it's not to say that the twitter files are completely useless there are things in here that are at least interesting to me um some of the screenshots not just confirming that shadow banning happens I, again i think we already think knew, we that, although, knew that although yeah. although twitter did actually officially deny it so it is it would be nice to have actual real evidence of that rather than a, a screenshot um, however um some of the the insight into the various categories and how that that shadow banding takes place, et cetera. Again, is interesting information. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss it entirely, but I just do not think that this is the amazing breakthrough journalism that it's being presented as.
0: Well, what what worries me, right, is is that you're having these these two, you know, journalists being set up and, and you know, being celebritized, I guess. I mean, they already did have like high profile platforms, but. Um, people sort of like in these types of events, in, in my experience, it seems like people really emotionally bond with these people. Um, and Elon Musk included in this current iteration of, of you know, how all this stuff is, is playing out. And um, I find that concerning in the case that, I don't know, for example, you have um, whispers of a potential repeat of the COVID era coming up not that long from now. And Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust being named World Health Organization chief scientist, right? Um, it doesn't bode well for that. So imagine the events of the past couple of years uh, end up repeating themselves in a way that's very unfortunate for the world. And you have, you know, the anti-establishment, quote unquote, people that have been elevated up and, uh, you know, uh, they're not exactly a reliable source of information, perhaps, when it comes to these types of activities. Right. Um. You know, if they're unwilling to to question events that took place 20 years ago or in the case of the Kennedy assassination, like much earlier, um, and are going to be actually a minority among the American public when it comes to the Kennedy assassination in order to back up the official story of the Conflict of Interest-Ridden Warren Commission. Um, you know, I, I just think given the stakes of what we're seeing right now, uh, people really need to understand uh, that information warfare is is very sophisticated. yeah. And also that, um, you know, like you said, James, people like Matt Tabe have done really great work, but at the same time, you know, no one is perfect. You should I, I really wish that people could get away from this culture of celebrity journalism and instead judge journalists on the quality of the journalism they produce and you know as on a even on a case-by-case basis or or something like that you know i maybe that's a lot to ask uh when the the political savior and this whole celebrity uh worship including in journalism is so ingrained in some people and, and you know very much um propagated by the social media model um which you know i guess is twitter files <laughs> coming full mm-hmm. circle in a sense yeah. but it's um uh i I really do worry that uh if people go and you know look at this stuff with um you know ab- approach it in kind of a naive way you're gonna get suckered in um and you know I've had experiences with some of these people i I've had a you know with matt Taibbi, um you know that's the only time I've ever been interviewed about uh my work on the epstein case and it has not been published and uh part of that uh I was only asked really one question uh before the feed cut off and I was assured that they had enough to make the interview and they would patch <laughs> it together and publish it and never did. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, Matt Taibbi asked, asked the first question and he said, um, what conspiracy theories about Epstein are too crazy? And I uh, said in in the question that I didn't want to really set any parameters. I don't have any interest in um, gatekeeping was the term I used, uh, specifically about Epstein's death, for example, because there's so much, I mean, no one really knows what happened, right? So um, uh, that somehow turned in, I, I later find out, not necessarily from Taibi, but other people at that podcast then sponsored by Rolling Stone, that uh, someone there in that studio thought that I was saying that Epstein is still alive. Um and uh this came out in a petition that was sent to uh Rolling Stone trying to get them to actually deplatform at Taibbi claiming that they'd invited me on, and I'd claim that Epstein uh was still alive and I'm a crazy person. So that's a pretty weird experience, and I'm a uh, uh a kind of disappointed by that. Um so you know, but I, I, I'm not bringing this stuff up, and I'm sure you're not either, James, because of our personal experiences with these people. I guess um, what, what I'm trying to, to point out here is that we can't really have rose colored glasses about these kinds of people when they've shown over the course of their career that there's certain topics that they're not just unwilling to engage with, but they're going to use to, you know, ridicule people that don't see the same way they do about certain stuff. So while they may be good on things like Russiagate and things like that, people really do need to learn. Uh, discernment. If your ultimate goal as a media consumer is to get as close to the truth as you possibly can, I mean, I think that's you know required behavior.
1: I suppose it comes down to people's own internal uh, uh, guide as to what what it is they're doing and what 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 they're engaged in and why. I think it has to come down to fundamental motivations. If you are genuinely interested in a pursuit of the truth. Then, as I have maintained for many, many years, in fact, since the inception of the Corbett Report, when this starts becoming about people rather than about information, then we mm-hmm. lose because then it becomes a soap opera and it could be manipulated in all sorts of different ways. That is why I do not ask people to take me at my word on anything that I'm saying. I always try to provide the references to what I'm saying so that people can go and look it up in its own context and see if they agree or disagree with my interpretation. That has been a core part of my work for many years, because I do not want people to put me on any sort of pedestal or to simply accept what I'm saying, or to think that I am saying, please accept what I'm saying because I say it. That is not the way this should work. And anyone who does come along with that as sort of the implicit um, guideline for what they're doing should, I think, probably be held in uh, suspicion for, for that, uh, th- uh, that, that view. At the end of the day, I'm sure a lot of people are more interested in the spectacle and in popcorn munching and in choosing sides in some sort of spectator sport. Um, Let's eliminate those from the conversation, because I imagine they're probably not subscribed to your podcast. So the people who are genuinely interested in truth, do not make this about people, make it about information. And that applies equally to myself and to Whitney and to everyone Mm -hmm. that you listen to um if you cannot triangulate or uh if what what they're saying does not actually comport with your understanding of reality of course don't take it on board just because someone you like or see that you think you like said it obviously um now having said that of course we have to make certain choices in life we only have a certain amount of time i'm not going to waste my time following someone that i strongly suspect is lying to me all the time Um, so we have to make certain decisions at certain points, but at any rate, no decision should be final as to, I will, this person is an arbiter of truth. And I think that's the fundamental point that we're both gesturing at.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the only point I feel like we didn't make today as we're wrapping up here that I I would like to point out to people, um, on the Elon Musk front, Elon Musk has been very, very specific that his intention in acquiring Twitter even though he made these postures about it being freedom of speech and culture war stuff, um, he said very openly that he intends to turn Twitter, if he can, into a WeChat equivalent, with WeChat being the closest thing we have today to the quote-unquote everything app, as it's sometimes called. And I think Elon Musk ended up sort of using that term, or at least mainstream media sort of attributed uh, that term to him. For his ambitions for Twitter. Uh, So, WeChat's parent company, by the way, is a major investor um, in Elon Musk, I believe it's in Tesla, and probably one of his most active shareholders. So, it's interesting that you have this idea of uh, promoting WeChat um, to an American audience because basically, WeChat. If you're looking at this as from the paradigm of data is the new oil, which I know you've you've covered a lot about that in in your work, James. Uh, you know you think about the who were the barons of the oil era? Well, you know the Rockefellers because of the Standard Oil monopoly. So if you want to be the Rockefellers of the data era, how do you basically get a monopoly on data? Well, you own the everything app because all the, uh, the idea of the everything app is having, you know, everyone do their finances, their social media, their government services, their whatever, everything through this one app, right? So if you, um, control that app, you control all the data flowing through that app. And if everyone's obligated to use it for everything, you're going to have the most data out of everyone else. So this is, uh, you know, Elon Musk is not at Twitter necessarily to restore free speech. And um, I actually got a message from uh, a friend of mine, Sam Husseini, who's also a colleague, a really great journalist. I would encourage people to check out his work. Um, he's been shadow banned more than ever under Elon Musk. No one can even see his tweets at all. Even people that reply to him, uh, his his tweet above suddenly becomes uh, hidden and stuff. I mean, you know, people need to be vigilant about the stuff and aware that there is some, you know, usually where there is this type of hype, even if it seems to be social media generated and viral, all of these things are manipulated. Social media is a heavily manipulated medium, the algorithms and all of that. I mean, it would be very naive to think that Elon Musk isn't tweeting that um, to his advantage for whatever goals he has for uh, his acquisition of the platform.
1: Let me just back up what you're saying there. I'm so glad that you Brought up that final point about the wechat everything app of twitter um I, it, that is such an important concept because as we're recording this i just recently released my new world next year with james Pilato, MediaMonarchy.com, where we're talking about our predictions for future trends and my prediction for 2023 is about the digital id and how that is going to be increasingly a part of people's lives and being foisted on the public and it's already happening in basically every country around the world various governments are working hard at trying to implement and foist a digital id on their population but as part of that pincher movement that we're talking about where it's generally there's there's two sides uh, that are essentially working towards the same thing but one seems to be on your side and the others the big bad evil scary man uh in this case it is absolutely possible that instead of having some sort of government-mandated government-run digital id oh that would be terrible no we want to trust spaceman with his digital id essentially which is what the everything app is it's it's the consolidation of your entire physical and biological identity into the digital space and everything that you do everything that you think everything that you buy is being recorded in that space so it essentially functions as a type of digital id and it may be a way of getting a digital id through the back door um uh, in with the support of the people who would be against it if it was coming from the federal government say so i think we have to be on guard against that
0: yeah what's very odd in the context of what you just said too is that you're having these rather prominent figures on the quote-unquote anti-establishment right Uh, For example, Jordan Peterson recently arguing that anonymity should uh, be eliminated from the internet and online. The government should be able to know who you are when you're saying stuff, Um, which is actually interesting enough. Another policy goal of the World Economic Forum and their partnership against cybercrime is literally all about that. And the people, uh, their reasons for the cyber polygon stuff, it all ties back to ending online anonymity. And uh, of course digital ID agenda, uh, having your government, your digital ID, your government issued ID tied to your social media activity is very much part of that. So interesting to see that popping up and people like Tim Pool talking about, hey, whoa, yeah, Neuralink is going to be the greatest thing ever. I can't mm. wait. Um, it, it, weird that all these, these, you know, voices in the same sort of niche, I guess, that uh, Musk himself is trying to develop are now starting to talk about how how great all this stuff is all of a sudden and you know people are gonna you know targeting the segment that nor of the population that would that would normally be most against this it's a bit it's a bit odd but you know i don't want to be a hopelessly stupid conspiracy theorist james so (laughs) well whitney as you
1: know the pursuit of truth and actually standing by principles has never and will never be a popular endeavor so yeah um, i know i think people have to look in the mirror and see if they're ready to to really take the plunge as to whether they are willing to withstand the psychological onslaught that will come as they become holdouts of the the brand new technocratic future that's being dangled out in front of our faces um anyway i know which side of that line i'm on but it's never going to be an easy path
0: Well, on that note, I would like to say sorry to all the listeners that might be Elon Musk fanboys or fanboys of Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Glenn Greenwald, and the list goes on. Um, But I think it's important that, as we said earlier, scrutiny is applied to All of us, that goes for me, that goes for James, uh, as my friend Ryan Christian likes to say, question everything. Should probably also be question everyone. It should all be about, like you said, James, the information, not the person. And I really hope at some point we get to a paradigm uh, where that is the case. And I hope that people, you know, if you're eagerly consuming the Twitter files hype and are enjoying it, which is you're totally within your right Uh, to do that, that, um, you know, perhaps maybe prod some of these figures to release the files that they're actually putting out there to be a little more uh, transparent. So, you know, uh, the idea is that this type of censorship doesn't happen again. So for effective change, that fact that that documentation has to be there, for example, if legal action were to be taken or something like that, um, to at least send a message or something like that to the Twitter executives involved in this suppression being exposed, most of whom don't work at Twitter anymore. I think all of them actually don't work at Twitter anymore. Fancy that. So um, I guess with that being said, James, thanks so much for joining me to discuss these issues today. Um, if, if you have any parting thoughts, I would love to hear them. And if not, if you could please let everyone know where to find your work and what you have coming up.
1: Uh, Well, let's leave the parting thought as, um, I don't want to say a plug for my site, but uh, at CorbettReport.com, you will be able to find all of the reports I've done along these lines. Just use the search bar to search for Musk or Peter Thiel or any of the issues and things that we've discussed. First Look Media, The Intercept, Omidyar, Greenwald. You will find it in the archives there. It's all available for free, so I hope people take advantage of that and use it as one way of gaining a window into this and as always only one way and uh as i i certainly don't have the the archive of everything but i'm working on it um uh, i will be plunging into the new year with a bunch of new material but um for the next couple of weeks probably taking a bit of a time off and uh enjoying the 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 christmas new year's break um so having said that once again thank you whitney for everything you're doing i hope your listeners are supporting your work I know this is not again, this is not an easy or popular path. And so my best to you and and thank you for doing what you do.
0: Well, thanks, James. I really appreciate that. Uh, you definitely, for me, are one of the models about how journalism should be done. Uh, you know, you were the open source intelligence master. So I am very happy to have you on my podcast today. So thanks again. And yes, for everyone listening, you probably are aware that Christmas and New Year's are upon us. So Uh, This will be my last podcast of 2022. See you all again in 2023. Thank you so much to everyone that supported this podcast, including when I was not producing very much because I was writing a very lengthy two-volume book. That is very much appreciated, and I hope everyone listening has a great holiday season and that you enjoy uh, this last uh, podcast of the year. Uh, Just like James mentioned, uh, Unlimited Hangout and myself also have a lot of uh, material coming out. Uh, next year uh, that will definitely uh, be of interest to a lot of people listening to this podcast and uh, interested in some of the themes of the recent podcast, including the FPX situation that I have written about recently. So I would encourage you to, if you haven't already, sign up for our newsletter at Unlimited Hangout so you can find out about all the podcast articles and interviews and other things um, as they they are released. And with that being said, have a great uh, holiday season, everyone, and see you in the next year.